In our previous presentation, we had stopped at the set of sutras from the chapter number 2, 10 and 11, which say the kleshas, when subtle, are destroyed by the disappearance of the mind, and the modification of the kleshas are destroyed through meditation. I am reminding as a general concept that in this chapter number 2, Patanjali started speaking about the so-called kleshas, or impurities of the mind, which he labels later as being also the famous samskaras or vasanas, residual impressions in the subconscious mind, but actually those are the residual impressions which are bad, of a negative quality. So Patanjali has described the five poisons, the five negativities or obscurations which belong to the first five chakras, to the five elements, and has reached to the point of saying that those kleshas can be pushed back into a more subtle state, and therefore that the kleshas do not disappear completely, but that they can be put to a more and more subtle state. Therefore that the roots of the kleshas exist for as long as the full enlightenment has not been obtained. And that is the reason for which in all the forms of classical yoga, nobody considers themselves safe until they have managed to reach a complete state of enlightenment, because else everybody knows that they have the root of those weeds, the roots of the kleshas are still there. Again, these roots of the kleshas are called also in Yoga Sutra and in other texts for your own clarification, samskaras or vasanas, and these are like residual traces in the subconscious mind, exactly like when you cleanse the field of weeds, there are still left little seeds in the ground, and next year those seeds will make that the weeds should come up again, and therefore the kleshas are also generating their own samskaras and vasanas, which are the root of all the negativity of the human being. And now, when he finished with this technical thing, that through meditation you can make them go to a more and more subtle level, and I already said a few things about that, the sutra number 12, with which we start this evening, continues. <coughs> An approximate translation of this sutra would be the manifestations of the karma hooks its roots into the afflictions, into the kleshas, and thus is to be experienced in the present and future birth, seen or unseen. This is nothing else but the basic theory of karma and reincarnation which is frequent in Hinduism and Buddhism, but Patanjali explains it here from a psychological, mental, raja-yogic, practical standpoint. Basically, he says again, the manifestation of the karma, so the fact that the karma manifests, like good karma or bad karma, it doesn't matter, hooks its roots, held its roots, into the kleshas. So the karma... The manifestation of karma is possible because of the kleshas, and thus is to be experienced in the present and future birth, seen or unseen. This automatically says that if there would be no kleshas, there would be no karma, and there would be no future incarnations as well. This is precisely what is stated in all the Indian mysticism, only you can see that Patanjali is presenting it in his own scientific way, in, by the norms of his scientific spirit. So this theory says that karma is manifested because of the kleshas. This is a very, very important thing, and it hides in tantric yoga one of the great secrets. This automatically says that karma manifests because of the impurities in the mind, these samskaras, these residual impressions of impure things in the mind. 
if there would be no impurities, no kleshas, and those of you who have been here before, remember those kleshas, avidya, the ignorance, and then all the others, ragas, vesha, and all the others, which are very, very root things, they are not uh, emotions, they are root causes, which can manifest in tens of psychological ways and mental attitudes of the human being. They are like seeds which grow up in multiple, multiple manifestations. So, these kleshas, these impurities, they actually create the karma, which says the karma is created by a certain level of our mind which says the karma is created at the level of Ajna Chakra. The karma is a force which acts at the level of Ajna Chakra because it is emanated or issued by the creation of the mind. That is why the yogis know that if you work on Ajna Chakra, you can influence the karma. The yogis also know that if you want to bend your karma, such as to postpone a karmic debt, to avoid a karmic trouble and others, you should work on Ajna Chakra. The yogis know that to be able to avoid a karmic trouble, such as a cancer or something which hits you, you need to have a discrimination, a clarity and a willpower which comes from Ajna Chakra. And if you do not have Ajna Chakra, the karma will play with you and you will not be able to discriminate. A person who has a cancer and has an arousing of Ajna realizes that through diet, through yoga, through homeopathy and through other alternative methods, he or she can stand up and defeat the cancer. But the person who has a cancer and has no Ajna Chakra will go and do chemotherapy and surgery and will end in agony and will die anyhow. Because Ajna Chakra was the one which would have allowed you to defeat this wave. This wave which is pushing you is actually rooted or centered at the level of Ajna Chakra. So this also tells us that Ajna Chakra is essential for being able to deal with karma. If you will manage to activate your Ajna Chakra powerfully, if you will manage to have a strong discrimination from the level of that chakra, and the stronger you have the lucidity and the level of consciousness at that chakra, the less important the karma becomes for you. A person with a strong Ajna Chakra can cope with the karma, his or her karma, and eventually even other people's karma. This is the reason for which, and some of you who have been initiated in our yoga methods know this already, there exist methods for burning the karma which belong to Ajna Chakra. Those methods are usually not revealed to the common person because they can generate all kinds of absurd attitudes if people realize that there exist methodologies for destroying the karma, then people can get the bizarre belief that they can kill people and do all kind of weird, absurd, extreme things, because then they will go and home and do some yoga for two, three, four, five weeks or months and burn that karma and in this way get away with it. The thing which I have just said is actually possible. It is possible to do that, and the yogis write it often in their text. However, the yogis who reached this knowledge and this capacity, they never did it in that way, unless they had some extreme reason, and or unless the thing was uh, excusable up to a certain extent. For example, a giant yoga text says that if you kill a mosquito or a fly, you can do five minutes of a certain form of pranayama and concentration and thus burn the karma corresponding to that killing of an insect. Therefore, it's known that you can do it and if you can do it with an insect, why not with a pig? 
And if you do it with a pig, then why not with a human being? It's just proportionally bigger, that's all. Instead of five minutes, it will be maybe 5,000 minutes, but it's still possible. That kind of truth, the yogis did not like to leak it to the outer people, because it could give to people who had a dirty Manipura the idea of abusing it and trying to kind of misuse this knowledge, because then you can get away with different things. While that is partly true, I can also say, and that's something which I teach in those yoga classes, where I teach about such methods, that that kind of trick will not work forever. Even the people who think that they acquired such a teaching, which will allow them to use this perverse mechanism to do ugly things from a karmic standpoint, and then to do work on Ajna Chakra in specific ways and burn it, while technically that is true and it works, there exist other forces in this universe and in this mother nature which may act in such a way that such thing, it will work once, it will work twice, and the third time you will bite the dust before you know it. And that is why, because the situation is much more complex and because the spiritual aspiration does not allow that, because of this, this knowledge is restricted knowledge that actually karma is related with Ajna Chakra and karma comes from some residual impurities on Ajna Chakra and by working on Ajna Chakra profoundly, if you manage to wipe out those residual impurities, the karma which was coming from them is also annihilated. Therefore, remember that karma has this character. It's a very difficult to get energy, to deal with energy. That's why most people are like puppets in front of karma. Karma is playing havoc. I have seen great teachers in yoga who had pupils who, by, who bit the dust. And that big, big teacher in yoga, as big and knowledgeable and powerful as they were, shrugged their shoulders and they said, karma. Eventually, you can't do much against karma. Also, great healers would have known this. There is this big homeopathic healer, one of the biggest, if not the biggest homeopath in the world, and he was telling often a story that he had a patient who had a cancer, he accepted to treat him, he treated him and the cancer went away, and then he invited this patient to a congress of homeopathy in Germany, to present him, to show to everybody that actually homeopathy worked. And the guy crushed with his car on the way to Germany, and he died. It's like karma, you know, you save him of a cancer, and he dies in a car crash. That is why karma, first of all, is a powerful thing, and even great people in yoga, hardly they deal to put up with it. You have to have constantly a level at Ajna Chakra to have no weakness in front of the pressure which this karma exerts. When somebody gets a cancer, it's like a wall is pressing on you. The wall is pressing on you and you get crazy and you lose your mind and you lose your clarity and you lose your discrimination and the family behaves chaotically and the friends behave chaotically and the relatives behave absurdly and eventually if you are not adamant that you cannot wriggle yourself free through a titanic act of consciousness and to keep it on, it's not enough to do it for five minutes. It's like you tell to everybody, leave me alone, I'm just going to have an Oshava diet and I don't want to go to the surgeon or something. It's not only five minutes, that has to be continued over five months. And it's like for five months, the disease and the karma which you have is all the time hammering at you, trying to find the dent in your armor, trying to find the Achilles heel, a weak spot in you. And therefore, you have to have Ajna to deal with this, but you have to have Ajna most of the time, like all day long, so you don't do stupid things in a moment of weakness. And therefore, it's difficult to deal with karma. That's why almost nobody, because of weakness, and you take a stupid decision, and your karma fulfills. After you did it successfully for three weeks, I can give you a example. I've, I know once I had a huge problem, because he had a very poor mula, his knees were completely empty. He worked like three weeks with pranayama and cosmic powers and mantras and stuff, and his weeks became better when, it's like, no doctor gave him any 
uh, hope, and he would all get into a chair and have enormous pain, and he started walking and being normal, and then he was an engineer working in the subway company, and something pushed him to go and inspect the rails, because that was part of his job, and he was on a medical leave, and as soon as he got there, instead of telling to everybody in the office, look, I'm just coming after a long knee disease, please take me easy, I can't do much... Uh, go out there in the terrain. I would like to do something in the office. You know, I still need to recover. He just jumped ambitiously to go out there for the groundwork, and he went into a tunnel, and while he was walking into a tunnel, he stumbled, and he fell on his knees. And his knees were screwed again, and he basically almost never made them well again. It's like, see, karma went to fix it with yoga, and that screwed it because of attention. How can afford to have such moments of non-attention? We are human. Almost nobody in this world, even among the big yogis, who stays all the time. If you would stay in Ajna all the time, you wouldn't be able to go and shop potatoes, because you'd be like a walking god on the surface of this planet. Maybe Milarepa was all the time in Ajna, but he lived 30 years alone, and he was doing yoga in and yoga out, and nothing else. Yoga day in and day out. And that's what I'm saying, because people cannot stay in Ajna all the time. Karma is behind them, is higher than them most of the time. And that is like a background force which manipulates us. The only way to deal with karma is to be able to move to Ajna Chakra and to make some efforts from there. And even then, there is a whole strategy and things which you need to know and do, which are way beyond the purpose of this presentation. And therefore, to come back to our story, karma is a force, an energy, an entity, which comes from the level of Ajna Chakra and which is relying on our kleshas, on the impurities in the mind at a potential level, at the level of samskaras and vasanas, residues, like leftovers, some residual marks. And working on Ajna Chakra, you can defeat that. That is why in many traditions there is this proverb, even in India, which says the things which are meant for you, your destiny, your fate, is written on your forehead. It's like the wise men have said, your fate is written on your forehead. It's like everybody who can see, sees. It's not a, conclu it's not a coincidence that they didn't say it's written on your throat or it's written on your chest. It's written on your forehead because of Ajna Chakra. Your karma can be understood and manipulated from the level of Ajna Chakra. The next thing to understand is this. This karma is related with kleshas, which means it is because of some impurities. Which are the impurities? Let's look again, the basic ones, right? They are avidya, asmita, raga, dvesha, and abhinivesha. They are ignorance. They are the sense of egoism or eyeness. They are attraction and repulsion, and they are the fear of death. As root causes from which 155 other negative offsprings or spawns are coming under the form of so many negative uh, shitty things which our mind can produce. And therefore, the karma is related with those, which means if you think well, you will realize that it is precisely the fact that I am having ignorance and I am allowing ignorance to be. It is precisely because I am having egoism and I am allowing egoism to be. It's because, precisely because I am ruled by the opposite of aparigraha, which would be going beyond desire and repulsion, being detached. But because I am ruled by desire and repulsion, I am attracted by some things which I am attached to, and horrified by some things which I am rejecting. And because I am having this fear of death, this basic fear of death, and all the things which come from all these, it's precisely because of that that my karma is coming. I don't know if you see, this is, this is a causal relationship, it's a direct relationship, which means my karma is not coming in a mysterious way because I'm having a mind which is still imperfect. My karma is coming precisely from that, directly, which means 
If I am having a very powerful ignorance, what kind of karma do I have? I have the karma which results from ignorance. I will get into karmic trouble which are caused by ignorance. And then you say, I didn't know, I didn't understand. If I'm having a strong egoism, I'm having a karma which is directly related with egoism. There are karmas which are not related with egoism directly. But mine will be directly related with egoism. Like for example, I'm having a karma which is coming from desire, raga, the fire of the, of the fire of Manipura. You remember, yes, it was called raga. I'm having an impurity, I, I still have lots of raga. I am a person who is blinded by passion. I'm having this telenovela, blindness. Raga is my poison. What kind of karma will I get myself into? I get myself into karma which is the direct resultant of my desire. I keep grabbing things which I shouldn't grab. I have desire for this. Oh, pain. I have desire for that. Oh, pain. And I, I won't understand it. I keep grabbing things which give me pain. And it's my desire which gives me my pain. And I can't see it. I'm so blind that I can't see it. Remember, people are having exactly the karma which is given by their mind. In Romania they have a proverb which says, Every bird dies in its own native language. Which simply means, every person gets it in their own way. A person who is, for example, no Humpty Dumpty will almost never get a physical accident. Physical accidents are gotten, are gotten by people who make physical exertion. Those who drive motorbikes get motorbike accidents. People who walk on the street, they don't get motorbike accidents because they never drive a motorbike. If you have fire up your ass and you want a motorbike, you already are prone to that because you are intense. There are people who are fire signs astrologically, for example, and those people sometimes have no peace. They want to become stuntsmen in Hollywood. They want to do something fiery. Well, if you hire yourself as a stuntman in Hollywood, you should know that they have a very short life expectancy. They die young. And who is doing you the trouble? Then you are going to try to jump with a motorbike from one building to another, and you will die. And people will say, he had a bad karma. His karma was bad because he had fire up his ass and he jumped with a motorbike. Could never jump with a motorbike from a building to another building. They didn't crush with it. It's as simple as that. Which means you always attract the kind of trouble which you have. That means if you don't do that effort, if you don't do that kind of thing, it doesn't come to you. It's like we are always asking for it. It's we are looking for it. People who involve themselves in all kinds of stupid relationships. And then they come and they say, I'm traumatized. It's a tragedy. You are asking for it, buddy. Why do you go in those kind of relationships? You are asking for it. You have fire up your ass. Something is itching you to go there. Don't go there anymore. But the people who have this, they can't avoid to go there. They have to go there because their karma says, bang your head against the wall and do the stupid thing. Therefore, remember, in school, I had a colleague in my high school who lost his leg being driven over by a train. How did he do that? He was hiking trains when he was coming to school. He lived in a part of town and he was just jumping in moving trains and he was going with the train for a kilometer or two, and then he hopped off the train, and he went to school. Nobody else got their leg lost in that school, in that generation. He did, but nobody else jumped on trains. If you jump on trains, you are asking for your leg to be cut. You, it means you have a bad karma. One of my early yoga teachers was a conservative guy. He even said this, he was asked in a context, and he said, and I'm sorry to say it in Kopangan where we are all forced to do this. He said, people who buy themselves motorbikes, and he meant the motorbike people, you know, with big Harley Davidsons, and this, they have a bad karma. 
because the percentage of wounds and broken bones and things among those people is sky high compared with the people who never touch a motorbike. You are buying a motorbike, it is your kleshas, your raga or whatever it is, which pushes you to buy a motorbike and break your neck. If you don't buy a motorbike and you walk slowly, you will not break your neck. That means people say, well, can't it be that somebody, in spite of being very calm and very this, still they got some horrible accident and theoretically it is possible. The laws of karma are very complex, of course. But usually the karma which we get is the karma which comes from the way we are. We always ask for the type of karma that we get. That's why the karma is coming from the kleshas. It's the type of mind that we have. If we have a raga type of mind, or a vasmita type of mind, or an avidya type of mind, or a one of those klesha type of mind, we get the corresponding karma. Therefore, yes, it is written on your head, and every bird dies in its own native language. The way you are, that's exactly what the kind of thing which you ask from the universe. And... What is the positive part of what I have said? The positive part of what I have said is that with a tremendous effort of will, discrimination, awareness, you could change that. For example, if you like to drive cars and one day you escape narrowly from a car accident, you can take a decision that for the next 12 years you shall never drive a car again or at least you should not be at the wheel of that car. If you, that's if you have Ajna. Yes, it's very difficult not to drive a car for the next 12 years when you live in a world where it's necessary to manage with a car. But if it's your life is at stake, what is more precious? That you should die or that you should take a tapas for 12 years of not touching the wheel of a car? You want to save your bottom? Act accordingly. If not, it means your raga or whatever klesha is there is stronger than your self-control and it is pushing you towards your destiny, towards your inevitable destiny. And that is why this is very important. It's the basic theory of karma and reincarnation. It says how things appear in terms of karma and he says this is to be experienced in present and future births, seen or unseen, which means they can be birthed in the astral worlds as well. And therefore, remember, you want to stop the chain, you have to stop the kleshas, because the kleshas give restlessness to your mind, and the restlessness to your mind pushes you to take decisions, such as buy a motorbike, which will be your undoing. And the chain will continue and continue and continue. That's why you have to be very careful from the standpoint of Patanjali and Raja Yoga. You have to analyze very carefully your desires and your kleshas to understand what is inevitably pushing me into my destiny. Which one of these forces is my doom, is my perdition. And the sutra number 13 continues. As long as the root of karmashaya, or the karmic tree, he calls it here the karmic tree, is there, it ripens and gives birth and class, span of life and experience. Basically, he says, as long as the root is there, sooner or later that root will sprout again. And therefore you have to cut the root. This root, this karmashaya, therefore karma is not destroyed with the death of the body. When you die, your karma is not destroyed because that just is like pruning a tree in the springtime. It cuts the branches, but it doesn't do anything to the root. And as long as the root is there, it will sprout again. And that is why remember that the seeds, which is the root of the tree, are in the causal body. The causal body, the body number five. And therefore, as long as you have not reached to do something about the causal body, the roots will not be burned and the karma will tend to sprout again and there is no fixed point, there is no safety point in this universe because they can sprout again. Your, how do they sprout again? Pay attention. They sprout again through the fact that the kleshas are potentially there 
And for example, if you are prone to have raga, maybe you manage to do meditation for 10 years now, and your raga is gone, and then in the next life, when put in the right circumstances, if you are not warned, there is raga again. And you become again a very desirous person, a person who is full of passionate desires. And you bite the dust again, because as soon as you allow that klesha to sprout, that klesha will bring the karma which corresponds to it, because karma is born out of kleshas. And therefore, that's why this is a chain without end, and that's why, again, there is no safety until this has been eradicated. The root must be eradicated, and that's possible only, ultimately, through nirvikalpa samadhi, or any form of samadhi which goes beyond that. And, as long as they is there, it ripens and gives birth and class, span of life and experience. What kind of birth did you have? Low caste, high caste, class, which social class are you? Rich, poor, span of life, are you living long or not? Some people, according to the theories of alternative medicine, like in homeopathy, they are, for example, belonging with, they are born with a body, which is going to live up till 40 years. Up 60, and others up till 80. Which is according to some forms of alternative medicine, your DNA is almost programmed how many years you'll live. And if you want to change class, you have to change karma. Else your karma is putting you in a certain category. And therefore, this is the basic theory that everything, your health, your lifespan, experience, oh, did I have a good experience, I have a bad experience, I accumulated experience, I didn't manage to get experience, plus all the other things, birth and class, as I said, they are all resulting from karma and from this root of karma. These two are the essentials, and yes, for many people they say, well, I knew this, yeah, that's a general theory. That's where it comes from, that's its original source, in this kind of text which explain it as related to Ajna Chakra and to the causal body and therefore to the very, very subtle layers of energy of the nature. And then Patanjali goes even further and here he becomes a bit blunt even. He says, they, all those birth and class and span of life and experience have happiness or sorrow as their fruits. So some of them make you happy, some of them make you sorrowful. You are born in a nice birth, you feel happy. You are born in a miserable place, you feel terrible, you feel sorrowful. Yeah? So they have happiness and sorrow depending upon their origin in merit or vice. That is very important and that's exactly what Jesus has said. A good tree will produce good fruits, and a bad tree will produce bad fruits. There is no good tree which produces bad fruits, and there is no bad tree which produces good fruits. By their fruits you shall know them. Therefore, this is often ignored. Jesus expresses that in a vaster way. Jesus actually generalizes beautifully. Here, Patanjali expresses this strictly mentally, spiritually, energetically, from all the standpoints which we have said, but it is very, very clear. He says, let's, let's take it to the implications. He says, they give happiness or sorrow as their fruit, depending on their origin in merit or vice. If they have their origin in merit, they give, you have such kleshas, and you have, you will get a karma, which will get such a birth, class, span of life, experience, so all those, if it's born out of merit, they will, you will get such things which have happiness as their root, and if you are coming from vice, vice will give rise to kleshas, which will give rise to karma, which will give rise to birth, experience, class, span of life, which will result in suffering. Therefore, here, Patanjali is actually very sharp, because things are very, you practice merit, you get happiness. You practice vice, 
you get suffering. Those of you who are happy, they are happy because they practice merit. And those of you who are sorrowful, sad, you are sad because you practice vice. It's as simple as that. And many people avoid to say it today because there are many implications. It's politically incorrect to say this. To say, well, actually the cause of your happiness is in the practice of merit. And the cause of your sadness, <coughs> misery, pain, is in the practice of vice. You are the author of what you are. Either you are sick or healthy, or you are emotionally unhappy or happy, or you are mentally distressed or full of confidence, or whatever you are, it's because of your practice of merit and vice in a previous time, up till the present moment. And therefore, that cannot be changed. That means you can come for it and say, well, I don't know really what kind of karma I had, but you know it is like I'm having a lesson to learn. And actually, these are Americanisms. These are soothsaying things. The truth is that you are sad because you come from vice. And you are happy because you come from merit. Period. There is only one guilty person for it happens to you. And that's you yourself. Nobody in this universe is guilty. If your boyfriend leaves you or lies to you. If you fall and break your knee. If you are getting stolen money. If whatever is... If for you yoga is more difficult than for your colleague for whom yoga seems to be a walk in the park. <clears throat> because of the roots in merit and vice. That's the end of it. That simply means, in a way, Patanjali is so sharp, that he simply says, you deserve it. Do something about it, because what you are, you deserve it. It's very difficult to go to a person who is in trouble, and to rub it in their face, and to say, you actually deserve it. Right? Not to mention that it is politically incorrect in so many ways. Some people have a car... They have an accident, like a train or an airplane is crashing, and somebody says, well, they deserved it. It was their karma. Death results from a negative karma. Whoa! No, it's kind of, you don't say these things to people, at least not in the second half of the 20th century and in the 21st century, because we have become wimps. We have become, we ask to be pampered, to be spared, not to be told the truth, brutally, because uh, we can't take it anymore. The point is that if you are a spiritual hero, you want to hear the truth straightforwardly, as painful as it is. When you read the life of Milarepa and the life of others, you see that those people have gone through terrible things. They have been beaten up. They have been tortured. Their family was killed. They have been deprived from rich, they became poor, and all kinds of things happened to them. And in their self-biography, Milarepa, and Merit Intellect, and others and others, they keep saying, no doubt, because of the heinous actions which I must have done in a previous life, I was subjected to that. Like they never blame their evil, their wrongdoers. Yet, when they are young and unwise, of course they blame the others, because that's what everybody does. You point fingers at others. Why did they do this to me? But actually Milarepa, when he gets wise, he says this was all because of this. And I wonder how much terrible karma could I have gathered in a previous life. It's like they always meditate on their own karma. They simply say that's the cause. The others... It's my kleshas. It's my own mind which has put me into that. I suffered like a dog. But why did I have to suffer like a dog? I suffered like a dog because of my karma. Nobody is guilty for that. And that's a simple truth which everybody knows. Nobody likes to hear it, especially when you are in trouble. And sometimes this is, of course, politically uh, incorrect. It simply means that wars are happening, people are dying... Yes, people have been dying in the Holocaust, in Darfur, in Rwanda, in... And somebody says they deserved it. Those people were there for a purpose. They were gathered by the miraculous hand of life. 
And they were a category of people who were walking straight, set forward into the slaughterhouse. And it was their karma. Each and every one of them, not as a group, but as an individual, each and every one of them was carrying on their shoulders a vice which killed them. The karmic result of a vice which killed them. And it's no accident. Of course, that does not justify one the Third Reich killers, or the Rwandan killers, or the Darfur murderers, or others. It doesn't justify them. Those people accumulate their own vice and their own future tragedies. Those people will also be killed hundred years from now, when they will be on the receiving end of such a tragedy, instead of being the perpetrators of it. But nevertheless, the reason is there. We don't like to hear it, because sometimes it sounds very unfair. Children are dying of hunger in Ethiopia. But what kind of karma do you have to be, to be born like one of those walking skeletons with a bulging belly? Who sent you there? Why should you have this existence of a miserable ghost, a hungry ghost or something, in which you are half in this world and half of, out of this world, and you never really reach the happiness of being a child? Even when you are five years old, your life is cold, and until then you live more like a ghost than a human being. You have been in pain and agony and unhappiness. Surely, I, looking at that, will experience compassion. But nevertheless, he says, pain comes out of vice. This is where it comes from. It doesn't come from some arbitrary decision of the universe. It comes out of vice. That is why we, who are spiritual seekers and who should always look to our own development and emancipation, we always have to fall to look for the cause in our own karma. I don't know if in this life but definitely at some part, I must have cultivated vice, kleshas, a very impure mind, which has generated this karmic thing, which now is making me suffer. Therefore, the problem is not to ask to the others, please change, oh guys, because you make me suffer. Everybody believes that if the others change, is the most often thing in a relationship. Every girl and every guy believes that their boyfriend or girlfriend is the source of their trouble. And if they change, their life is going to become good. It's not. Your karma is what it is because of a klesha, because of a vice. Even if you change your boyfriend and move to the other end of humanity, you are going to fall exactly in the same pattern. Because the klesha and the karma is there. And therefore the only way to stop this is for you to change yourself. It's completely senseless that you should ask to your boyfriend, girlfriend, brother, sister, friend, somebody, stop doing that, it hurts me a lot. It hurts you because of you, not because of them. They are just being themselves. Remember that according to Vedanta, as well as according to Leibniz and his model of the world that we are all monad, this whole world which you see in front of you is a painted soap bubble. The only thing which exists is your monad, your atma, which exists in the middle of this soap bubble, and the whole world, lovers, friends, brothers, sisters, mother and father, they are like a painted movie on an inner screen of a planetarium. You have like a <coughs> planetarium screen because you live in the middle of a soap bubble. This is all a 3D illusion, it's maya, and therefore why are you asking for this maya to change? This maya doesn't even exist. Your friend doesn't even exist, ultimately. Because if your friend exists, he's Atman, and he is the same with you. That's the only level at where they exist. And therefore, the fact that your friend misbehaves and gives you pain is actually you, eventually. But it's very, very, very difficult to accept this, especially when we suffer, because we always tend to project outside of ourselves. Here, Patanjali is cruel. He is sharp and cruel he, because he is not in Anahata. He is in Ajna. And he tells you with discrimination from Ajna. He rubs it in your face in a rough way. You like it or you don't like it, from the standpoint of the mind, that's the reality. The vice and the virtue create pain and pleasure. If you experience it, take heed of that and find the of that in 
you. The solution is never in the others. Gurdjieff used to say the same thing with his famous formula that the spiritual person is the mea culpa, which in Latin means it's my fault, always, and the non-spiritual person is the person of tea culpa, which means it's your fault. Always a non-spiritual person will say it's your fault to somebody. My mother has not given me enough milk when I was a child, and therefore I'm fucked up. I'm not guilty. My mother is guilty because she didn't love me enough when I was a child. This is a nonsense from the standpoint of Patanjali. I am what I am because I'm having pleasures which are not redeemed and I accept to live in the vice produced by those pleasures. And those pleasures produce energy which torments me. And that is why you can see there are people who are meant for success and they always get success, and they seem to be the lucky bastard, and there are people who go from one trouble to another, from one trouble to another, from one trouble to another. There is only one solution. Work on ajna, correct the kleshas, work on the first five chakras and purify them, do not accept the five poisons, correct them, and it will be possible for you to deal with these elements as well in the future. So, Remember that merit and vice, uh, when he says by merit and vice, these are by reference to the universal moral law. Uh, the closest model which we have is actually the yama and niyama of yoga, because uh, virtue and vice mean something in Judaism, something slightly different in Christianity, something slightly different in Islam, something very different in Hinduism, something again different in Buddhism, and that's why the norms of various religions differ all the time. But according to yoga, there exists a universal morality, there are universal moral laws, which are described by Yama and Niyama, because those are neither Christian, nor Hindu, nor Buddhist. They are based on the fact that they correspond exactly to these kleshas, and it would be an interesting thing for you to think that if there are five, five Niyamas, they address to the five kleshas, so each of the yamas and niyamas is actually correcting one of the kleshas. I leave you the pleasure to do a bit of homework and investigate and to try to find out which would be which of them and by which yama and niyama you can correct each of them and thus maybe even corresponding them to a chakra and so on. But here, therefore, Patanjali is very straightforward and if you would have this spark of genius, you would be able to guide your life much, much better without trying to blame anybody for what is happening, because what is happening is our own doing eventually, even <coughs> when it seems that it is done by others. The others have, I don't know, betrayed my confidence. What am I guilty that some betrayed my confidence? My guilt is that I'm not having a proper attitude to faith and confidence, because else my confidence could not be betrayed. For example, Jesus did not get upset that people betrayed his confidence quite often. Jesus reacted in a totally different way to the fact that even his own disciples his confidence. And therefore, remember that we have to learn to deal with those things. And finally, the last sutra which I'll read tonight, tonight's short session, and that's because number 16 is a huge one which requires a long commentary. I am now at the sutra number 15 from chapter 2, and it says something like this. In the eyes of one who has discrimination, all is painful, because of pains due to change, acute suffering, samskaras, as well as to gunas and vrittis in opposition. This long sutra is a sutra which expresses typically a Vedantic view. Here Patanjali classifies himself as Vedantic because this view is a terrible view. Unfortunately Buddha had a little bit of it, 
and Vedanta has quite a bit of it, and this is, I'm reading again, in the eyes of, whole, of one who has discrimination, all is painful because of pains due to change, acute suffering, samskaras, as well as to gunas and vrittis in opposition. The commentators of the Yoga Sutra have tried to find out an order in this, and they have said, okay, the first pain, because pain, uh, everything is pain, and the first level of pain, or the first degree of pain, is because of change. Many people suffer because of change. For example, death is a change. Somebody is here, then they are not here anymore. That's a major change. I suffer. I would like that everything should stay the same. I lose my job. I lose my house. I lose my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I lose this. I am afraid of change. I feel comfortable with what I had. So the first pain is actually change. Change often induces to us different forms of pain. The second pain is anxiety. I translated it as acute suffering, fretting, worrying, anxiety, angst. All these are expressed by the word which is uh, used by uh, Patanjali. And you all know that that pain produced by the fact that nothing happens, but I'm torturing myself because I'm asking myself, what will be? What if? What if that? What if that? And then I'm torturing myself with that. And then the third are the samskaras, the residual traces, the kleshas, and the things which come from my mind and all the time say, go, go, do this, what? I desire this, I don't desire this. I, it's always the samskaras which don't let me sit, sit quiet and do meditation. My samskaras are moving me and they are a source of pain in all respect. And then finally, the, gura, the gunas and vrittis, he says that, look at his view. He says in this world everything is pain because either you have change and it's impossible to stop change because as the Greek said, as the Greek philosopher said, pantarei, everything is flowing, everything is changing. Therefore, there is nothing which doesn't change. So, you can't stop change, therefore, if you are afraid of change, you will suffer. You cannot stop anxiety as long as you have not ruled over your mind, so your mind will keep worrying. Why am I here? What shall I do? What about this? What about that? So, I suffer because of change. I suffer because of my own mind and its anxieties. I suffer because of samskaras, which is already the more subtle layers of my mind, which all the time push me. They don't let me stay quiet and watch the sunset, lie down in a hammock and just enjoy the infinite. I all the time am being pushed. And then, Patanjali says, and even gunas and vrittis in opposition. Both of, any one of you who knows a bit of deeper yoga has heard these words, the gunas, the three gunas, the three tendencies, are therefore basic forces of nature, very discrete forces of nature. And vrittis is a word which is used like in nirvikalpa, vikalpa, vritti. Remember that Patanjali said in his first chapter, sutra number two, that yoga is chitta vritti niroda, the paralyzing of the vrittis of the mind. Vrittis means therefore the very essence of the mind, the life of the mind, the, if you want, the spanda, the basic vibration of the mind. Therefore, because of gunas in opposition, because of vrittis in opposition, like in that music of Jean-Michel Jarre, TV, no TV, revolution, no revolution, change, no change. It's like always in this world you find opposite concepts. Somebody says there should be change, and somebody says there should be no change, it's just wonderful the way it is. Vrittis in opposition. The resultant of these two vrittis, which can be in your mind or in the mind of two different persons, is that sooner or later there is going to be struggle. Struggle means pain, ultimately. And therefore change. Fretting of the mind, movements of the mind. Samskaras, the, the residues which push us to do things. Gunas and vrittis in opposition, which means forces that we don't see or understand but which also create obstacles. Like in me, I can have something which is tamasic, and I can have something which is rajasic. The tamasic part of myself says, no, nah, let's be lazy, and the rajasic part says, you have to do this, you have to do this, get up, you have to do, you have to be ambitious, you have to conquer the world, you have to do. I am in pain, because a part of me wants to rot lazily, and a part of me wants, is ambitious, and the world is not enough. 
And therefore, I'm having gunas in opposition. I'm having vritis in opposition. Concept. Therefore, this whole world is a battlefield. Change. Anxiety. Vasanas or samskaras. Gunas and vritis. This is the world of dialectics, as Hegel has called it. It is the world of opposites, plus and minus, yin and yang. They always fight. Vikalva, alternative. This world is dual all the time. And unfortunately, to this, Patanjali gives a solution which is Vedantic and Buddhistic, because he says everything is suffering. This is not what the Tantrics believe. The Tantrics believe everything is God. The Tantrics believe everything is Shakti, the power of God. Everything is the Holy Spirit of God. Everything is the life of God. It should be worshipped. It should be venerated. There is nothing to be afraid of in life. But the people who cultivate Vedanta, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, this, this discriminating type of yoga, splitting type of yoga, not union type of yoga, the people who practice the old Buddhist ways, like the nirvana, samsara type of dichotomy and duality, they all the time come up with this solution. Everything is pain. That's why as you are going to see, Patanjali being old-fashioned and belonging to this school, he comes with a bad solution, at least from a tantric standpoint. It's not that it doesn't work, but he's coming with this self-destructive, dissociative, separating, ascetic, denying, uh, suicidal, if you want, type of solution that you have to quit this world because his philosophy is clear. Doesn't Buddha say the same thing? Samsara is an ocean of pain. What are you doing in samsara? Get out of samsara. That's the philosophy of it. Reach nirvana, extinction of all desires by which your thirst of life is extinguished and you go. But the tantric tradition of India and Tibet doesn't say that the tantric tradition says this world is good the way it is and you can dance like the dancing Shiva in it. Their philosophy is the philosophy of Bhava Samadhi, not of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. It's the philosophy of Samadhi with the eyes open, not of the isolated Samadhi, of the escapist Samadhi. It is the philosophy of conquering reality and mastering it instead of trying to chicken out of, from it and to escape from it. And that is why here Patanjali is expressing his half of the truth. He, this vision is highly depressive and the Christian mystics and the Buddhist monks and the Vedantins will all applaud Patanjali and they do applaud Patanjali, that's why they like him so much. Because he's talking their language. He says, in the eyes of one who has discrimination, all is painful because of pains due to change, acute suffering, and all those. All is painful, there is only one solution. Get out of here. Stop this madness. Commit a sort of spiritual suicide. That's not what the tantrics believe in, as you very well know, and as I have expressed it so many times. That is why this solution is a partial solution to the problem of life, but it has worked for many schools and for many people for centuries, and therefore for Patanjali it works. Patanjali therefore preaches Kaivalya, isolation, run away from here, Purusha being separated from Prakriti. Purusha is transcendent spirit Shiva and it should go in its nirvana and Prakriti can fall apart because it's a lie, it's a maya, it's an illusion and the hell with it ultimately. And therefore, Patanjali is proposing a painful philosophy in which basically this pain is a motivation to escape. Life is pain and therefore don't have a smile on your face. You are a prisoner in a painful prison. Try to escape from here and find your happiness up there. While this is true factually, and many people did it, remember that it does not express the tantric truth of the universe, and that's why when we comment it, we cannot fully subscribe to it. We say Shakti is full of duality, but that doesn't make the spiritual heroes quit. It makes them tackle the subject in a Shiva-like manner. We will get more about this when he...
continuously. It is enough for now. I have concluded the sutra number 15, and we are going to conclude our meeting of tonight, which was shorter than usual, but still it was shorter than usual because of the previous lecture, which lasted for a long time. I'm saying we are going to conclude our meeting with another five minutes of meditation on Ajna Chakra, in which some of these ideas, remind them, let them settle down, let them go deep in your mind, so that you can have a profound understanding of what Patanjali is teaching in his Yoga Sutra.